You're listening to Meritocracy. Hi, I'm Carrie Lee Merritt, and welcome to another episode of Meritocracy. As you know, this series is called The 2020 Election and Beyond, The Possibilities and Pitfalls of a Post-Trump America. And today we have somebody who's long been one of my heroes. I'm so excited about this, Heather Cox Richardson. Now she's an expert on 19th century America, specializing in politics and economics. Her most recent book, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. It is amazing. We'll talk a little bit about that um, in the interview as well. But she's also author of To Make Men Free, A History of the Republican Party from 1854 to the Present, which was released in 2014. Cox Richardson's first four books explored the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Gilded Age, and the American West and stretch from the presidencies of Abraham Lincoln to that of Theodore Roosevelt. Her The Death of Reconstruction in 2001, Wounded Knee, Party Politics and the Road to an American Massacre, 2010, and West from Appomattox, The Reconstruction of America After the Civil War, 2007, were all selections of the History Book Club. West from Appomattox was also Editor's Choice selection of the New York Times Book Review. She is also the author of The Greatest Nation of the Earth, Republican Economic Policies During the Civil War. Richardson is president of the Historical Society, an organization designed to bring academic history to general readers. Her expertise has been utilized by the New York Times, Bloomberg, CNN.com, BBC, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, the Huffington Post, and her blogs for the Historical Society won the Cleopatria Award. Her daily digest, Letters from an American, about Trump's ongoing impeachment process, has attracted something of a cult following, and I highly recommend you sign up for these letters. They're amazing. So I can't wait to share this with you. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Carrie Lee Merritt. Welcome to another episode of Meritocracy. I'm here today with Heather Richardson. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's so much fun, Carrie. So before we really delve into your work and even what's happening politically today, I wanted to ask a couple of questions just about you, um, your background. Now, you're known as a historian who has um, a real way with words. You can tell that you put a lot of effort into the craft of writing itself. And so I wondered um, you know, how you really thought of yourself. Do you think of yourself as a writer, as a historian, or even as an activist? Because of course, your letters from an American have become basically, you know, you have a cult following with that. So now people are, are tying you to the political as well. I make sense of the world through words. That's just the way my brain works. And actually, um, there was one period in my life when I had a writer's block, which at the time I did not believe in until I got it. And it was probably the worst period of my life because literally the color drained out of the world around me. I couldn't process the world because I couldn't write about it. So from the time I was little, um, I've been a writer and I've loved words. But I think one of the interesting things that um, that I didn't put my finger on, my one of my best friends did, I um, I grew up in a very small town and there were three of us really who were inseparable. And weirdly, of the three of us, one never went to college and the other two of us became college professors. And I said to my friend once, I said, isn't that funny? What are the chances that two of us would become writers out of three kids in this town? And she said, 
she laughed and she said, you're kidding, right? And I said, no, it seems weird to me. And she said, uh, you know, we were here, we, sh we were here in the summer together. And she said, from the time we were able to hold a pen, we wrote to each other a minimum of three times a week all winter long for years and years and years. That was how I saw the world was through writing. So I've always, that, that to me is just how I process stuff. In terms of what I write, that too is really just how I see the world. I happen to be fascinated by history and by people who lived in the past, um, how they changed their world and how they saw their world. So what I write about happens to be history. And I love the, the, the feeling of the world from them. It's all about seeing the world. And similarly, the fact that, that I have become an activist is less at all about politics or anything than it is, it feels to me, and this has always been what fascinates me about, about the world is how what people see is not what's really happening. And what people think is happening is often more important than what is happening. So I gravitated really early on to novels uh, like Henry James's Portrait of a Lady or like Heinlein's Double Star or, um, or Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night where people believe something that is not true and how it changes the way they behave. So all I'm doing now is sort of translating for people, you know, this is what you are being told is happening, but this is reality over here. And it was never intended to be activism. It was sort of more a sense of grounding and a sense of this is who we are and this is what the world looks like. Isn't it more interesting this way than the fantasy that's being sold to you? So in some ways, you're almost a truth teller, peeling the scales back from people's eyes. A translator, maybe, is how I think about it, a translator of reality. But there's also an advantage to being an older woman. And that's something that I don't think we grapple with enough in society or in academia. That, you know, I've lived, a, uh, you know, I'm 57, I'll be 58 next month. That's not a short life. And I've seen a lot and I've learned a lot. And that I'm a, I'm a very, obviously, I'm a better writer than I was when I was younger. But I'm also much more grounded in what I think is acceptable behavior for human beings, but also for our country. And that I think matters. I think to be able to look at a story and say this matters and this doesn't is something that comes with age and with observation. And that's something that I think, especially mothers, are pretty good at doing. I love that. And I, I want to just kind of continue down that road a bit because I think that is something uh, as I'm actually about to turn 40 this weekend. And so as I'm, I'm grappling with kind of you know, the freedom in many ways that does come, but, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to be upset about it. I think I, I really appreciate that I'm at the point of my life where I can say exactly what I want to with no real fear of reprisal. What kind of transformation have you seen in your 50s that's really, I think, probably added such amazing insight into your letters from an American? Honestly, we have this, and again, you're, you're a younger generation than me, but there was this thing when I was growing up that somehow as women aged, they kind of aged out of their shelf life or whatever, and, and that somehow getting older was a bad thing. And I found just the opposite. I felt like nobody took me seriously until I turned 40. And 50 is even better. And one of the things that, that I was told early on in my career was that, you know, you could have children or you could have tenure, but not both. There's one thing in the academy that I would love to tear down. It's that actually being a parent has made me a far better scholar because you've had to 
to be able to explain what you do to young people who are like, you know, mommy, what are you doing all the time? And you, you have to put that in language that they understand and that they see as important. But similarly, once you have survived small children in any function, you've just stretched your capacity so much, both in terms of being able to see the world in different ways, but also in terms of being able to push yourself and to say, well, yeah, you know, this is insane to think I'm going to teach for a full day on three hours sleep. Oh, wait, that was my 30s, you know, when three small children. And there was one night when literally every, there was one up throughout the entire night. So by 730 in the morning, my night was over and I'd never actually, my head had never actually hit the pillow, but I had a job. But then I also think having lived through that and having recognized that you can, you know, take care of children and have a job and do all those things, there comes a point when you're just like, I'm not putting up with crap. Like, I'm absolutely thrilled to have a conversation with you. But, you know, don't come into my space and and try and bully me because I'm sure this is a G-rated production here, but I just, D-G-A-F, you know? Absolutely. That's something that I think younger women, and maybe younger people, obviously my experience is as a woman, but younger, younger women anyway, not only are not comfortable doing it, society is not willing to let them do it. Somebody said I was intimidating. And I went to a friend of mine at the time was chair of the department. I said, what is that? Like, I'm nice and I get along with people and I'm not pushy at all about my ideas. And I'm happy to work with people. And he, and, and I said, why would someone say I'm intimidating? He goes, you're one of the most intimidating people I've ever met. And I said, what does that even mean? And he said, well, you know, you say what you think. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's what we're supposed to do. And he goes, yeah, but most women don't. And I thought, there it is right there. Mm-hmm. An honest woman is one of the scariest things to uh, men in power. So I just finished in the last few months reading your brand new book, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America, which is out with Oxford University Press, uh, just out this year, 2020. I loved it. It was brilliantly written very accessible for non-historians to completely understand the story. I know you had wanted to talk with me about uh, how masterless men, my book, and yours really interconnect so well. It's almost like you take the grain of my book and then show how it, you know, affects the whole rest of the West and then the rest of America. I'm just in awe that I was any tiny part of your writing of this, but can you tell the people at home a little bit about the main thesis of the book? I can, but first I want to talk about your book. I just, I love Masterless Men. For years, I had been telling people that there was a book missing in the world. If you think about the the early 19th century, the whole idea of democracy was like poor white guys were going to work their way up and they were going to take over the country and they were going to get money in their pockets and they were going to go ahead and be prosperous and all that. Most books about the 30s and the 40s are all about that. And it's really driven by the South. That whole manifest destiny, go West, young man, that's a Southern idea. And then all of a sudden, the historiography in 1850 suddenly switches and everything's about race. And I used to sit there going, what happened to that idea? Where did it go? Like, who taught? And I actually did like this side road for a while, trying to find a historian who had written about it. And there's one terrific article that is rarely cited that was in a historical journal, which actually will look through literature and trace that idea through literature. But the book didn't exist. It drove me crazy because I wanted it to exist, but I didn't want to write it. So then I looked one day on Twitter 
And I did not at the time follow Carrie Lee. And somebody said, oh, this book is coming out. It's going to be great. And I, I went to the website and looked at the, at the description of it. And I believe I tweeted at you and said, I cannot wait for this book. You know, please let me know when it comes out because I've been waiting for this book for so many years. And that's what she does. She puts in that link between this idea of how you can work your way up and be a good Democrat and take, you know, and be a good American citizen and be prosperous with the crashing in of the obsession about race and, and the taking over of American society by elite slaveholders in the 1850s, it's that window right there. And it's a granular window on how they negotiate that space. It's just exciting to watch young profession people doing such great work. There's so many great books out there. If you could just give our, our viewers at home just a, a brief overview of it, bring it up to today, how it relates to today's politics. So the book actually does a lot of things, and I'm thrilled that they appear to have hung together as well as they did, because when I finished it, I literally wrote to my friend Mike Green at UNLV a minimum of three times saying, but Michael, is it a book? And he kept saying, yes, Heather, it's a book. The book does a lot of things, but what it tries to do is to set out the premise that America has a fundamental crisis in its democracy and always has. Because that whole idea that all men are created equal with the concept that that can be expanded depended on the idea that some people could not be included in that position of equality. And that draws from a book that was written in the early 1970s by Edmund Morgan called American Slavery, American Freedom, in which he took on the question of how the same guys who came up with the idea of, of equality actually owned other people. I mean, the definition of inequality. And how did they hold those two ideas in their head? And he argued was they were only able to come up with the idea of equality because they believed in inequality and because they believed in the enslavement of people that they thought were inferior to them. But what Morgan did uh, that I tried to expand on is he looked at the relationship between Euro-Americans and African-Americans, and I was looking at it from an issue of standing of power. It wasn't just African-Americans who were enslaved by the Euro-Americans who were conceiving of freedom. It was also uh, indigenous populations, and of course they thought women were not even basically human. I mean, there's something different. They certainly should not have rights. The concept of American equality depended on inequality for all these people. And it argues that there's a corollary to that. And the corollary to that that undermines American democracy is the idea that if indeed equality depends on inequality, whenever you approach a situation in America where it looks as if people of color and women are going to be able to achieve equality with white men, oligarchs are able to use what I'm calling a corollary to that initial American paradox to say, wait a minute. If they get equality, you are going to lose your equality. You are going to lose your the liberty on which your equality depends. And using that leverage, they have been able twice in our society to marshal political power, uh, to convince people that the idea of extending American equality to people of color and to women is going to destroy the country. And they do it in four stages. And those happen, I, I said in the book, I said how it happens in the 1850s, and then I say, you know, this whole idea of oligarchy directing a male by the Civil War, that was what Lincoln was about. It should have ended. And it didn't because right then Americans moved into the, the west of the, the area west of the Mississippi, where the idea of oligarchy, the idea of maintaining some people as being more equal than others, if you will, fit fit very naturally. And then the book takes a look at how that ideology spreads from the West back into the East. I argued that since World War II, once again, oligarchs have been able to marshal that same language and to 
find political support in the South and in the West in order to do it. So like I said, there's a lot of moving pieces. And for historians at the end of the day, what I was trying to do was to um, put forward what is actually a very complicated and sort of, I hope, well thought out theory about the relationship between the language and in this case, political power. And it, it was really kind of developed as a critique of Hayden White, if anybody cares. And someday I, I hope to put that in pa on paper. But the book then does a number of things. It, it has this argument, but then it also switches the East and the West. The, uh, we used to think that the East was about slavery and the West was about freedom. And I switched mm -hmm. that and say the East actually ended up being about freedom and the West about slavery. You know, it takes on the, the conflict, the larger conflict in America between the idea of equality of opportunity and equality of access to resources. How does a democracy in t on two occasions throw oligarchs into power? And this mm -hmm. is attempted to find a reason for how that happens. And of course, all of that is so, so incredibly relevant to everything we're going through. And so that's a great way to shift into the upcoming election. And I just wanted to get... Is there, is there an election coming up? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> everything we're trying to put out of our heads. You've got such a deep wealth of knowledge, not only of American history, but of American political history. How would you advise the general public to approach these last few weeks leading up to the election? What should we be prepared for? Do you think there's going to be violence? Do you think there will be a white backlash, retaliation if Trump loses? you know, massive protests, what do you foresee happening? Well, remember, historians are prophets of the past, not of the future. And so the, the first thing I would say, and I always say this to people, and I've been saying it, well, my whole life, but certainly in the last few years, the future is unwritten. We get to pick the future. The thing that upsets me most about the moment we're in is how many people say, I'm so helpless, there's nothing I can do, I'm hopeless, we, it's all lost. It's like, no, it's not all lost. You know, if, if it were all lost, I wouldn't be writing these letters, I promise you. Not only because there would be no point, but because I wouldn't be allowed to write those letters. So the future is unwritten is the first thing I would say. It means that we have an obligation to change it in a way that we think is a good direction for the country to go. And that's the second thing that I think is really important in these next two months. But it was less than a week ago, less than a week ago, less than a week ago, that the Atlantic published that story about uh, Trump insulting the military mm -hmm. and is calling them suckers and losers. Doesn't that seem like a million years ago? Because since then, we've had the Woodward book that established that Trump knew in January just how deadly the coronavirus was, and he proceeded to go and lie to the American people, and now we have almost 200,000 people dead. We have the Cohen book that, that, among other things, the new piece that was in that was the, uh, the evidence of the fact that uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. endorsed Donald Trump because he was blackmailed to do so with um, with photos of a, a sexually explicit nature. And then we've had the the whistleblower complaint from the um, the intelligence community. The I'm sorry, the Department of Homeland Security that says that um, that they have been cooking the intelligence books to support Trump's uh, reelection and his um, his ideas about or his arguments about dangers in the streets coming from the left, when in fact the intelligence says they're coming from white supremacists and Russia. And I mean, it's just, and of course now we've got another Russian oligarch having sanctions on him because he is feeding intelligence to, uh, to uh, Congress people in, in, in the Republican party. That's all in a week. And, and, and California's on fire, mm -hmm. you know, and California and Oregon and Washington. Right, the entire West, West Coast. Coast. They're horrific. Those fires are horrific. California's lost more than 2.5 million acres. Oregon has lost almost, was it Oregon? Um, yeah, both Oregon mm -hmm. and Washington have lost almost a million. That is, like, if you were writing a textbook about this period, 
any one of those is enough for the entire four years in the administration, mm -hmm. them all in one week. Mm -hmm. So what would I say to people? First of all, remember who you are. Like, remember what your values are. And remember that people are trying to knock you off your pins, if you will. Somebody said to me the other day, uh, they wrote about Joe Biden has a secret sex island somewhere, which is apparently a QAnon thing. <laughs> I said, really? Tell me how that, how that works. Like, tell me how, how you could keep that secret and be in the public eye for, you know, almost 50 years when um, uh, Jeffrey Epstein couldn't do it and he was trying to be secretive. Like, how do you shut up the maids and the, the airplane uh, pilots and the, the cleaners. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, so remember reality because we are living a reality and your feet can stay underneath you. And remember what your values are. Mm -hmm. You know, we learned this morning that the money that is supposed to be protecting the firefighters and the police officers, the firefighters, mm -hmm. I guess, from 9-11, the ones who were ill because of the materials they breathed in while they were rescuing people in the, the tragedy of 19 years ago today, that that money has been disappearing. It's been being siphoned off by the White House, and they're not answering questions about it, including questions from people like Representative Steve King, who's a far-right Republican. Is that okay with you? Like, 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 regardless of where you stand, obviously King is a Republican. Is that okay with you that your tax dollars are being siphoned off from the people that we considered heroes running in to save people in 9-11? Your values have not changed. People are attacking those, but keep your feet under you and remember to think well of the people around you because your neighbor is almost certainly not running a secret sex ring out of his basement um, because if he were, you'd know it. Right. You know, when they break these scandals, People are all like, yeah, I knew something was going on over there. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing I would say is really manage to keep your feet under you as all the craziness, and it will be crazy, happens. How has your personal background and struggles that you've been through really prepared you for, for difficult moments, including this one? And where do you turn to rebuild strength and shore up hope? Well, I've been really lucky in that in my life, in that um, I have always had a foot in a number of worlds. So, um, you know, I always laugh when I get emails about how, um, you know, how I'm just an elitist. Um, and, you know, and it's true, I have a very elite education. I was very well educated, both at Exeter and Harvard, but also in my public schools in Maine, mm -hmm. which were very, very good. And, and this is in the 60s and the 70s. And people forget that our public school system is still very good, but it, it could be a lot better. And it certainly was. I was in a very small town in Maine and I got a crackerjack education mm -hmm. from them um, in, in many fields. Yeah, there were also, there was also the guy who drank behind his desk. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I also got an education in weirdos, right? As, as we all did. And my, we, need, we need that education. <laughs> yeah. And my peers were uh, in, at all of those places have been fabulous. But that being said, I did grow up in a very small town that has a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds. There wasn't a lot of money. We, we certainly had money, but you know, my definition of money is you have a roof over your head and food on the table and that you're safe from abuse. And that's a big one. Many Americans are not. And that's one of the reasons I make, I always try and talk about domestic abuse because I have seen it and it's, it's, it's somehow still a secret. One of the statistics I always like to pull out is that we have like more than half of our mass shootings in America, which I believe is four people killed, are domestic violence related. Mm -hmm. and, and that's to me uh, a, a statistic that 
everybody should know because you think of the Mandalay Bay shooter, but the reality is it could be your next door neighbor. And that's something I think Americans do not grapple with and should. So anyway, that being said, I have had experience with a lot of people. Um, worked as a waitress a lot and um, and had jobs that maybe are not what people think of when they think of elites. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my partner, I did not go to college. He's a, he's a lobsterman. I have a foot in a lot of worlds. I know Trump supporters, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Bernie supporters. I know communists. I know um, a lot of people in the middle of the road. I think that that's really helped me meet this moment because it's hard to demonize somebody when you know them. And that, I think because of the stratification of wealth in America since 1981, which is really dramatic if you lived through it, there's a lot of people who don't have experience across class backgrounds. Um, and, And a lot of people do have experience across race backgrounds, but not so much across class backgrounds anymore. And I think that's helped a lot. And as for, for what keeps me grounded, it is partly that because I do have so many wonderful people in my life, and that's first and foremost. Um, but it's also that I have a really abiding faith in American democracy and in, and in people. You know, I believe that people ultimately are going to do what's right. There's always rotters. We all know that guy, right? Or that woman, right? Most people are basically good. And, and I believe that we have a right to determine how we live and to determine the government under which we live. And sometimes I despair like everybody else. And then I sit there and say, well, what are my options? Do I want a monarchy? Do I want to be told how to live my life? And the answer is no. I would a thousand percent trust the people, you know, the few hundred people in my town to run the government. Even though we have the guy who, you know, smokes his breakfast and the person who, you know, you can fill in the blank. We have all those people, but as a whole, and we have Trump supporters and we have, we have people on the far left. We have, we have everybody. We could do it um, as well, probably as the people who are currently in power. And that's what gets me up every morning and keeps me writing. Because I think when people are reminded of that, they will remember that American democracy is really a miracle and that we have the ability to make it better every day. Wow, that well, your answer just gave me some hope. So thank you for that. What are the key issues that you really think that Democrats need to be hammering home over and over again in these last few weeks leading up to the election to really get people fired up and get them out and get them voting and get them protecting others at the polls? Just just becoming involved at any kind of even a local level. First of all, there's nothing more important than being involved at a local level. Um, and that's really, again, speaking of places, I think the great untold story of the last four years is that middle-aged women have essentially taken over politics at the local level. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to sell that story a thousand times over and everyone's like, yeah, whatever. I had a student who's, who's going into politics and he's been hanging out at his local, um, at his local meetings. And he says, I see what you mean now. Mm-hmm. He said, literally, he goes, it's all middle-aged women yep. and me, you know? Yep. <laughs> So local level is really important, but I think that what the what what everybody needs to be focused on, and especially of course the Democrats, is the extraordinary inequality in this country, and and I mean ec- economic inequality, and in that I suspect you will agree with me, but a lot of people don't. They're focused on um, many of the other issues we have here. There are plenty of issues to be thinking about, and, and you will hear what I'm not talking about, of course, is climate change, which is we simply must deal with that. The reason I say economic inequality is because that, of course, hits people at home, right? It hits people in their pocketbooks. But as a historian, 
um, there's a pattern that I don't think we talk about enough, and that is that America tends to emphasize equality of opportunity and equality of access to resources at times when the economy shows a compression between the people at the top and the bottom. Mm -hmm. So the times in the 1850s, the 1890s, the 1920s, and the present now, all those dates that I talked about, those are all times in which uh, we have terrible racial problems, terrible class problems, we have attacks on the environment in all of those, because in each of those we have a period in which wealth has moved upward and the people at the top of the scale believe that they have a right to, to direct the way society works and not worry about us little people. And when you leave that extraordinary inequality unchecked, what it does is it creates this disaffected population. We're disaffected economically, but also culturally, religiously, and they are ripe for the kind of demagoguery that we're seeing around us now. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that what we really, me, and again, this is my thing, and I, but I, I see this as the umbrella that covers the racial inequality, the climate inequality, the, the cultural inequality, the gender inequality, and I see all of that coming under, let's fix the damn economy. Mm -hmm. And then we will have the, the bandwidth to address the other hideous problems in society. Now, that's sort of a, an overall thing. It does seem to me that um, that will require a major rethinking of most of our systems in this country. And I don't see that as a negative thing. I mean, you look at where we are with the police and... And one of the things that really shocked me, and I would encourage look, uh, listeners to go do this, I was looking the other day at the 1968 Democratic Convention, and you may remember in that that the there was a police riot when the police mm -hmm. turned their badges around and they went in and they started cracking heads. And we put that in the textbooks as, one of, as a low political point in America, as a terribly violent moment in America. If you look at that clip today, it looks quaint. The police officers are wearing pants and shirts and helmets and they have nightsticks. Mm -hmm. That's it. And then you look at the law enforcement officers on the streets in Portland. They're dressed for war. Yep. They're wearing bulletproof vests and they have these incredible guns and, and, and you know, they, they look like they are going to fight a war. And that, that difference, the, this idea that somehow we need to be policed by military, when in fact, statistically, violent crime has been plummeting for the last 20 or more years. Like, this is not okay. There's so many areas in which we are not okay. I hate to have to say this. Sometimes I feel this is what I do in my letters. It is not okay for our police forces to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Mm -hmm. I don't care what the person has done. Um, I don't care if there's outstanding warrants. I don't care if they're an angel of light. That's not how our system works. The law enforcement officers are supposed to enforce the law by delivering those people into our legal system, not by murdering them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all these areas in which it is, it is not okay for somebody to have to work three jobs in order to put food on the table. It's just not okay. We're the, you know, one of the richest countries in the world. That's not okay. It's not okay for people not to be able to afford health care. These are things that we have become, we're like the frog in the pot, we've become accustomed to these things. They're not okay. And I don't mean that as even a moral stance, but as a democratic stance, as a way to organize society, this is going nowhere good. Mm -hmm. So for me, the way you start is to say, what went wrong in our economy? 
We need to fix our economy. And in order to fix our economy, we need to fix, to make sure everybody gets a say, and that's fixing the politics. Once we've done that, then to me, the rest is, I hate to say it, kind of easy. Mm-hmm. Because then once people are not being like, you can't have, you can't have any rights because you're going to attack my rights, it's going to be a little bit easier to say, it's okay to give you some rights because I can feed my kids. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what, uh, the same way I always think about, uh, especially in the South, the way that you sell you know, social democracy essentially is that you've got to go to these uh, poor whites. And what I think is really the majority of Trump supporters are, are really um, middle-class whites, some of whom don't have college educations, but they're still well off, you know, and really explain to them not only the history, but what each policy would do to their lives to make their lives better because of the way education has been in this country. They, a lot of them really don't understand it. They really don't. And, you know, there's a lot of, of, of fault. I think there's, there's a lot of people that put fault on them for being racist. And, and of course, I'm not taking any of that away, but there's still a lot of fault on all of the other white people in America who aren't doing the hard work of then educating them and explaining what these policies would do, right? And it's funny you say that because you're doing this series for YouTube. That's mm-hmm. where people get their news. Mm-hmm. And I write on Facebook and I deliberately put my very best work on Facebook because it's, it, to me, that's what democracy is all about. It's making sure people have really good access to stuff. But also it's interesting to me how many people talk about class issues and mobilizing people to uh, address inequalities in society, but they're actually not talking to the people to, that they're trying to mobilize, or rather they're talking at them perhaps, but not meeting them where they are. And I'm very tired of hearing how nobody cares about history and nobody cares about politics and all that, because the stuff that I'm putting on Facebook is not easy stuff at all. It's, it's actually quite complicated mm-hmm. stuff on how, you know, the history of executive orders and, and um, why, you know, what, what, there was a great one. Um, the order of succession in one of the branches of the intelligence community. I mean, most scholars don't even follow that mm-hmm. stuff. And, you know, I, I have hundreds of thousands of followers who write to me and they're like, oh, that was really interesting. What about this over here? And I think partly it's just that there is this sense that you, that that stuff sh- is inaccessible. I, I don't, I don't know what it is, but it does seem to me that there are a lot of people who would like to be active participants in our society and feel that they have been excluded. Those are the people who are more likely, I think, to listen to anything they can get their hands on. Those are the people who are susceptible to the demagogues. Uh, Absolutely. Just let's for a moment assume that Biden wins or that somehow we end up in a post-Trump America. Once we are finally in that post-Trump America, We'll have so much to do to clean up, you know, not just domestically, but also internationally. But given what you were just saying, how do you think we should go about implementing real policy change? Do we kind of need to create a third reconstruction and add, you know, several new uh, constitutional amendments? Do we just need to pass a lot of acts? What, what, What do you see as the way to go forward politically? What, well, again, I'm a, I'm a prophet of the past, uh, for sure. I do think about these things. Um, my, as you know, my focus is on language. I think the way you affect change in political change and therefore every other kind of change in America is by changing the way people talk about things. Because once you change the way they talk about things, you change the way they think about things. And that, um, that is a start right there. You know, the idea, you know, so many people say to me, what can I possibly do? It's like talk. 
take up oxygen. For a long time, it feels like we have let the, the bullies in the corner have all the oxygen. Whereas if somebody had turned to them early on and said, you know, if you're going to talk that way, you're not welcome. They would have shut up and they would have gotten along. You know, they would have, they, they, that kind of uh, dominant language would not have taken over our society where people are saying things now that are just, just, I don't have words for it, but they're also bullies. And, mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that we're going to have to do is change the language. Now, that being said, another point here, historically, we are way overdue for constitutional amendments. You know, mm -hmm. we go through, these go through waves, as you know, and it has been a very long time since we've had major constitutional amendments. So I would predict that we are going to have them. What exactly that's going to look like, I think, is, is unclear. Um, but I think that just historically, it's time for more of them. Now, that being said, um, we've had a lot of trends uh, really since World War II, but especially since, since Nixon and especially since 9-11, uh, the anniversary of what we're talking about now, that have dramatically strengthened the president. And that is not only under Republican presidents, although it really took off under George W. Bush after 9-11 when he began under the advice of um, Samuel Alito's, uh, who is now Supreme Court Justice, he had given advice to Ronald Reagan about the use of signing statements to increase executive power against the Congress. And what that meant was Congress under our Constitution is the only body that can initiate laws. Mm -hmm. Congress writes the laws. Congress writes the laws. Congress writes the laws. And the president does not, which is one of the reasons when we have fights over the line item veto, one of the arguments against that is that that would enable the president to have a, you know, to be able to decide what the law was going to be. Mm -hmm. The president can't decide what the law is going to be. The president can only faithfully execute the laws. Mm -hmm. But with the signing statements, what those did, and when Samuel Alito wrote this memo um, for, he was in the Office of Legal Counsel, as I recall, under Reagan, he said, Congress isn't going to like this because it's going to really increase the power of the president. And what you're going to do is you're going to, there have always been signing statements, but usually when a president signs a law, um, a signing statement was sort of saying, oh, you know, I want to thank, you know, Lee and uh, Carrie Lee and, and Heather for, for putting so much work behind this. It's mm -hmm. kind of a bouquet of flowers. What they did under George W. Bush, especially, although as I say, the policy was, was conceived under Reagan, was to say, um, the, under the signing statements, I'm not going to enforce this part of the law uh, because I don't believe it's right. And I am going to enforce this, but in a slightly different way than you asked me to do. And what that did is it managed to, to start us down the slippery slope of the idea that the president gets to determine how our laws are executed and therefore to some degree how the, what they mean. And from that, it, that's really enforced this idea that has grown in American politics of late. And that's the idea of um, the unitary executive. And what that means is that because the president is the head of the executive branch of government, which is not just the president and his cabinet, it's like hundreds of thousands of people, because he is he or she is the head of that branch, he, I'm going to say he here because we haven't had a she yet, although we're sure waiting for him, um, he is able to run that uh, branch as he sees fit. And because he is the head of that branch, and because the three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the, um, and the judicial are all supposed to be equal, Congress has no oversight over him. Mm -hmm. And people have varying degrees of how strong they think that executive should be, but many of us, most of us, with the possible exception of people like Attorney General William Barr, um, believe that if you don't have any checks on the president, 
he becomes a dictator. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, historically, um, this is exactly what the founders were afraid of and why they put so much power in the Congress. The first article of, of the Constitution says the Congress is, uh, is really where everything is going to happen, mm -hmm. as people like to say Congress is first among equals. But that's one of the things that I think we must rein in because, for example, we have handed to the president the power to declare war. Um, they're not called wars, but essentially they are wars. We haven't declared wars since World War II, I don't believe. We've handed to the president, you know, all kinds of powers that are, it, it, I think people on both the left and the right think it's sort of, you, you short circuit our democracy by simply getting your guy in office and he does what you want. Well, that's called a dictatorship. It's not called a democracy. And we have to kind of rein that in and put some power back into Congress where it should be. And part of that is going to be making people recognize that they are our democracy. It is not a spectator sport. And once that happens, there's going to be really a really unsettled period, lots of new laws hemming in the president. But I think for our children at the very least, it's going to be a much more balanced country because it can't not be. I wanted to know really quickly, are you planning to put um, your letters from an American? Are you planning to compile them into book form? I'm sure you're asked about that all the time. It's so funny you say that. Um, so the anniversary of them is coming up this week and I figure I have written every night and I figure an average of a thousand words a night. That's 365,000 words so far in a year, and that's the equivalent of five to six books. Mm -hmm. Now, let's be honest. Does anybody really want to read that? I don't. So my plan is to, um, to self-publish probably a few copies of the whole run mm -hmm. so they exist. And so I can put them on my shelf and say that was a year of my life, or it's going to be more than a year, obviously. Um, what I am planning to do is, and I'm actually in the process of writing it now, is do uh, um, a different book that sort of is a much broader book, like we've been doing here, not here's what happened today, but more this is why democracy matters, mm -hmm. kind of to be an endpoint, because they will have an endpoint. I intend to keep writing after that. But what the letters from an American have been is a snapshot of America during a crisis, the same way that that um, uh, Mary Chestnut's letters or Mary Chestnut's diary was about the Civil War. This is about a certain thing. And I don't want it to peter into you know, my 80s where I'm going, ah, I planted a flower today. You know, I will continue to write. Um, and probably from that, there will come, um, either I will take excerpts from the letters and put them into that book, or there may be a collection of the best of those essays. Sometimes, um, sometimes they sing and, and lots of times they don't. Last night didn't sing. Last night was, I got three hours sleep last night. I just want to tell you what's in the news. I'm going to bed. Mm -hmm. But the night before that, that final paragraph about the fires in California, I think is one of the best things I've ever written. Beautiful. So, I mean, it's only a paragraph, but it was good. Mm -hmm. So I think there'll be, there's room to pick and choose. But the whole thing, we really, we're going to be looking at eight or 10 volumes by the time this is over. First of all, it's going to be prohibitively, really is going to want to know about you know, the angry letter that somebody wrote in the de Treasury Department. In well, there'll, there'll be a, a grad student, you know, there, there'll be somebody going through this as a primary source someday. So that'll be, that'll be amazing to think about. That's exactly what I'm writing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, when, I, when I try and decide what I'm going to put in, 
I literally think of that young woman mm -hmm. in a hundred years and I say, what does she need to know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes some of the stuff I put in there might look like, why did she put that? And I'll put it in because it's a significant cultural moment that she can use to open a chapter. Mm -hmm. And I, wow. I quite literally look at the news and say, does she need to know this? Well, she probably didn't need to know a lot about Kanye West's uh, bid for the presidency because you could see it was quixotic from the beginning. But she really does need to know about this whistleblower complaint because this one has legs. Wow, that's amazing. So do you think more historians need to think about doing something like this, keeping personal records because we know how history is used? If you have the time and the energy, I would say yes. I will say, Carrie Lee, that when, when I do this, um, I am clearly driven. You know, this is no longer me putting pen on paper. It's me keeping the nation's record. Mm -hmm. um, it is not something I would recommend to anybody except in a personal way, first of all, because that, that, there's much less pressure. But, you know, these are taking me about six hours a day. Mm -hmm. This is not a small investment of time. And it, it's taking a big toll on my professional production and also on my personal life. Mm -hmm. So I would not say that, and it happened. It just happened I caught a wave. I would not, um, I would not urge people to go do it unless they feel similarly driven. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it, 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 you know, a year of my life is gonna, or more, is gonna be in those volumes that someday will sit behind me. You might not want to give up a year of your life for that. That's amazing to think about. So your next book, though, that you are writing, will that be trade press? Or, or are you still going to write for academic presses? As you know, um, each book is different, and mm -hmm. they, they find their homes. So I wanted How the South Won the Civil War to be on an academic press. I, that was, that, I said to my agent, this is where I want to go for various reasons because that's where it belongs like kids you know like mm -hmm. like you know there's no point in trying to send your as i know there's no point in trying to send your child who's obsessed with physics to art school i intend to keep publishing in various places but if you had told me exactly a year ago that i would be writing the letters from an american and they would have gotten the attention that they have gotten on facebook i would have cried laughing and you just don't know where things are going to go. I don't expect you will see me entirely disappear ever. And you will live on forever with all of your, I mean, you, you were one of the most prolific, um, especially women historians, I think, ever. It's, it's just amazing your body of work to look over. And I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I've got just two more quick questions. The people that have been listening now have gotten just an amazing education for free since you're so graciously donating your time today. If there are, you know, certain charities or certain causes that you really believe in um, that you would like to encourage people to support either with their time or their money. Yes, there are. But I, I just want to say about my production, please remember the, the women academics who are watching this. The reason I write the way I do is because I it's part of my brain. How I see the world is through words. Mm -hmm. If your brain doesn't work like that, you should not look at my level of production and say, I, I have to do that. You should say, oh, I'm so glad that my brain is not wired that way so that I am constantly writing everything. Mm -hmm. So never feel like, like this is a standard that is anything other than a quirk of my brain. In terms of uh, supporting charities, 
Um, obviously, anything that encourages people to vote uh, from any party, I, to me, it's, it's, it's just about participating in democracy, but anything having to do with women and children, uh, domestic violence and domestic abuse. So, and, and those places are hurting really badly right now because there's not money coming in and because people are quarantined with the, the perpetrators of the violence. So those are my, always my two big issues, feed people and keep them safe. And voting is a way to do that. So exactly. If you can't do any of those things, just get out there and vote. Make sure you get your absentee ballot. And I'm not even advocating one party or another. Just make sure your voice is heard. So one final question. If you could offer one piece of advice to Americans right now about how to try to heal, to really kind of psychologically heal from some of our past wounds so that we can possibly move forward together, you know, in this hopefully post-Trump America, what would that advice be? Well, it's funny you say that because um, obviously societies have done so before in the past. Um, I would say, again, remember your values and remember that you don't have to deny the pain of the past in order to move forward. In fact, you have to live with it. You have mm -hmm. to say, yes, I behaved badly or yes, I was treated badly, but I am still moving forward. And, that's, and I'm carrying my scars with me. Our scars are not things to be ashamed of. They're things to be proud of because we are healing them. And, um, and to that end, I would suggest that, that what I said earlier is, is really kind of the way I think we should all live our lives. You know, tomorrow can be better. Tomorrow can be a lot worse too, but tomorrow can be better. And the day after that can be better. And you can be better today than you were yesterday. And certainly our country can be better tomorrow than it was yesterday. And that's not only the story of America or the story of us as individuals. You know, it's a story of humanity, really. We can be better and we have the ability to do that. And that's kind of the miracle of being able to, to live through a period of chaos is to come out the other side and create something beautiful out of it. I love that. And that's a, a beautiful way to end. So Heather Richardson, thank you so, so much for being with us here today. You guys go ahead and hit subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, hit subscribe to the podcast channel. I will put all of uh, Heather's information in the notes here for you to get in contact with her, to follow her on Twitter, and uh, to sign up for her letters from an, from an American. Uh, Heather Richardson, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Have a great day.